Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Rookie Chef podcast. I'm Nadia Ziafat from the BBC Good Food team and my day-to-day job is replying to your feedback, chatting to you on social media and writing up some of the posts. So if you follow us on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook, then you've probably seen some before. Unlike the rest of my colleagues, I'm still at the start of my cooking journey, even though I did grow up in a food-loving family. My dad is a chef and he's got an Iranian restaurant in London and my entire family are such great cooks, which means I do have an appreciation for food and the way it connects people. But that doesn't mean to say that I'm a great cook myself. This podcast is a way to explore the dishes that I love and how to make them just right. Each week, I'll be interviewing cooks making fantastic food across the UK. Plus, we'll be bringing you a bonus cook along later in the week so you can make those dishes in the comfort of your own homes. Join me on this journey as I try to learn how to make these incredible dishes for myself. This week, I'm joined by award-winning Persian chef, cookbook author and presenter Sabrina Gayor, and we're going to be discussing Tardig. Hi, Sabrina. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Good morning. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So for anyone that doesn't know what Tardig is, can you just give them a quick rundown? So Tardig is actually two words fused into one. So Tah means base or bottom and Dig means pan in Persian language. And it it basically is the delicious, crunchy, crispy, chewy rice base that's not burnt, as some cultures might think, that we in Iran absolutely revere and, uh, you know, pretty much has a bit of a cult status because it is very, very important if you're making any rice dish or a stew with a rice dish on the side to serve up excellent taddy. It's kind of the measure of a cook. Definitely, yeah. So there are lots of different versions of it, but what ingredients make the perfect tardig for you? You need to choose a really good quality basmati rice. It's the only way you can have a successful um, rice dish. It's so, so important and qualities vary greatly. Um, And then there are so many offerings now in our shops and supermarkets that it does kind of make it a little bit confusing, I would tend to stick to the best, let's say if you're going to a supermarket, the best brand of basmati that they have, whether it's the shop's own basmati label or, or, you know, a a particular brand, go for the best rather than the economy, because, you know, basmati benefits from aging um, and, you know, the better sort of higher end of basmati brands do, do really have better quality in most instances. Yeah, yeah. And so you use a combination of olive oil and butter, right? I'll be honest, since I wrote that recipe that came out in my first book, Persiana, I have developed far more um, 
sort of variations and different ways of doing things. You can, the olive oil that I use, I must state, must tell you that it's light olive oil. So not extra virgin ever because it burns so quickly and also is so pungent. So what I would recommend is just say, you can actually just use vegetable oil or sunflower oil or for, this is what I tend to use more now, and it's definitely a more common ingredient, ghee. Because the clarif- ghee is just the in- Indian word for clarified butter. Because they've separated the butter solids, it doesn't burn. And this is actually what Persians call kare, butter. Oh, oh of course. Um, yeah. Which is the word, you know, butter, kare, the kind of stuff that you'd spread on, on toast is also that. But cooking fat back in the day in Iran would also be called kare, but it would have been clarified. So it technically would have been ghee without the localized Asian name. So I I kind of tend to favor ghee now, but what I like about using the oils is it does make it vegan for people. So or vegetarian or people with dairy intolerances, there's a you know a whole host of reasons you can accommodate people. So I do it that way. Yeah, I actually made your tardig recipe. <laughs> I actually made your tardig recipe from um, Persiana last night. And I was so nervous about it because it's awful to say I know it's a half Iranian, but I've never made it in my life because my family and my dad just do it so well. I just don't see the point in trying when, you know, they it's just like effortless for them. But last night I was like, right, if I'm talking about it, I have to have had the experience of actually trying to make it. So I said to my dad, I was like, stay upstairs, don't come in. I don't want your input. Like, just get out of the room and, and I'll have dinner ready. And I was so proud of myself. And I was also surprised how easy it was because I thought it was just some sort of like skill that was passed down through generations and only your like great, great grandma could could teach you how to do it properly. But it was it was fine. I mean, it, it, it partially it really is that kind of thing. It helps. But, you know, the the downside to having your parents pass things on to you, especially in previous generations, would be like, you want you want a little of this and a little of that and just a thumb's worth of this and a, just a soup's on of that. And you're like, what is that in measurement? It, so sounds like, <laughs> it sounds like I'm talking to my dad right now. I asked him how to like show me how to make rice once and he's going, you have to do it up to there on your finger on your finger, finger. put your finger in yeah, put yeah. your finger in and but you're to like the top what of the part rice. of my finger like how much uh, uh, you know what if I'm doing more rice it is not a recipe version it's not a version that you can teach to people and I realized you know I never even had that but I I just you know from watching like things like Big Fat Greek Wedding and those the kind of cultural films I'm thinking this is a really common thing because I remember once being in Greece and saying to my friend, she was pregnant. And I was like, oh, I'm going to come over. I'm going to make you all these cakes. She's like, yeah, because that's what I'm craving. And I'm like, right, what, you know, pass me your scales. I packed a suitcase full of cake ingredients. Pass me your scales. What scales? Yeah. What? She's <laughs> like, we're Greek. We don't weigh things. Yeah. I'm like, oh my, what? So I remember the um, Persians are the same. I remember reading this thing. Um, this girl was trying to make like a family recipe and she called up her mum or her grandma and she said, okay, so I'm at this part of the recipe. How do I know when it's done? And she goes, you just feel it. You feel when it's done. What does that mean? I, I don't <laughs> understand. Why do they just expect you to have this innate sense of when food is done? I mean, it's, it comes with experience, but it's hard to learn of parents when they when yeah. they know how to cook. <laughs> especially Persians, because they go, well, when it's done, it's done. And you're like, but is there any indicator? When it's done, it's done. And you're like, 
<laughs> this is never going to work. So I'm happy to have taken one for the team and spent the best part of a decade researching and also continuing to research. It's it's important to sort of say that this book, you know, it came out sort of six years ago, seven years, eight years was when the method that I'd kind of worked on was perfected. But even since then, I've learned so much more because I've had six years, seven years of people giving me feedback going, oh, that's great. It's turned out really well. I got to do a little bit more work on perfecting my tardy base. And I've learned, like, especially if you cook with gas, because flame is t- direct heat is basically a tough, tough one for tardy, especially at a high temperature. So I have all these additional gems um, to sort of bestow on you today of how to really, really make it foolproof for people. I mean, so you're talking about how you developed your recipe and um, I just got your book Simply, which is incredible. But in the introduction, you mentioned how your family didn't cook when you were growing up. So how do you think you learn how to perfect these recipes? And, you know, were they passed down through generations or was it just sort of trial and error yourself? So I am just 100,000% self-taught. Nobody cooked in my family. My mother was ousted out of the kitchen. My grandmother never cooked. And when we came to London, my grandmother was forced to learn a few dishes from like a cousin of hers, just to kind of keep the house afloat, you know. Um, And she just hated it. She would sort of pick one Sunday every couple of months where she would just spend the whole day in the kitchen making like three or four different stews and then just freezing them with, you know, ready-made portions that she would cook of rice and (laughs) freeze those as well. And it worked, to be fair. Um, But she had no love for it, no love for cooking. And when I first started showing signs of wanting to, to cook, I certainly at that age wasn't curious about Persian recipes because I was watching telly. So, you know, when you're like a kid watching telly, that's what you're, you want to cook. She was just always like, well, don't worry, we can just get it from outside. And I'm like, no, no, I want to cook. She was like, really? Like, why? So, um, so I come from a quirky background, but the good thing with that kind of uh, tradition, well, that kind of uh, sort of background of growing up means that whatever I've taught whatever I've learned, I've talked to myself and then I've whittled it down to all and cut out all the, no, you have to do this and this is the only way and you must do that because you have to just feel it. Or, you know, I've cut out all of that and realized what you really need to do versus what you really don't need to do today because wash, because rice is commercially washed. You know, Persians spend half the day soaking rice, (laughs) soaking, rinsing, soaking, rinsing, you know, and sorting through it, looking for impurities. I'm like, rice is commercially washed now. You'd like, you don't, that's not a thing anymore. They're like, but you have to wash the rice. And I'm like, but what are you doing when you parboil the rice? You're washing it in boiling water. So I realized, whilst I would never dispute the traditional recipe because it's always going to be the 10 out of 10, my version is the 9 out of 10. It gets the result and it, more importantly, is not designed to teach Persian people or, you know, traditional cooks, Persian cooks, how to make rice. It's designed to teach people who have never made this stuff, whether you are half Persian or full Persian or not Persian at all, you know, give you a, a shot in hell at being able to produce something that you really want to produce and, and to have confidence and to gain confidence and understand that this is not the kind of recipe that you make and perfect in one hit. Your heat source, 
i.e. whether induction electric gas or agar even sometimes comes into it, or what kind of pan you're using, what kind of rice you're using, all this makes a difference. Yeah, definitely. I think I was so surprised when I first went to uni and obviously I was living with a, a load of people my age and I tried to make rice once and I failed miserably. But I just, I, I watched people just effortlessly make rice like it was nothing. And I, I looked at the way it turned out and I'm obviously I'm not a food snob, but I just saw it and I was like, that's not what rice is supposed to look like. Because <laughs> obviously I'd grown up with this incredible rice. I was like, it's it's so watery and like, no, it, it just didn't seem right. But so you speak about the importance of pans and ingredients and all the different things that go into it. So what would you say are necessities for making the perfect rice and the perfect tardique? So in a dream situation, your perfect pan would be a nonstick pan because then you don't even have to bother with the, my paper method, my essentially like lining a cake tin to prevent the base from sticking, which is great because it helps those people that don't have a nonstick pan and makes the, f- the flip out of the rice when you flip it over foolproof, it comes out without sticking. But if you have a nonstick pan, then your rice is actually forming its fully round cake crust, you know, and it's that's mega. Um, that's really one of my best tips. Doesn't need to be an expensive pan at all, but just needs to be something that's a little bit sturdy. Um, the uh, the one pan that I would say is the enemy, and so many people try use this, and they go, "I burnt the rice," and I followed it exactly like you said, and I went did you use a cast iron pan? And they're like, well, yeah. And I'm like, no, because it's like conducts volcanic temperature. Those cast iron pans are perfect for cooking on an agar, cooking on a low heat for a long time. You know, they're not designed. And also flipping that pan over, the the pan itself weighs about five kilos and add a kilo of rice into it, honestly. (laughs) I, I hurt my wrists doing that in the past. It's not, that's not you know, how you drain your rice and how you rinse the rice after the parboiling process. That's where 90% of people that do go wrong, go wrong. It's an exercise of patience. You can't rush Persian rice. And the irony is I'm making it sound like it's all a hard process. Once you've nailed it, you're doing it in your sleep. It's like, yeah, parboil, wash it, you know, flip it over, make sure no lumps, make sure no rice is stuck together, make sure it's all cold, which indicates it's it's all gone through the cold water. Really rinse and drain it. Let it sit for 10 minutes. Boom. Put it back in the pan and it's perfect. So it's just observing and respecting a few simple rules and then you're away. Yeah. It's just nailing the basics down. And then once you've got that, it's like, you know, whenever I go to my auntie's house and they're making like a a dinner with like 10 different dishes and they're just in the kitchen, it's like, it's just Cook second work. nature for them. Yeah. They yeah. just know exactly what to do and when to do it. Yeah. And it's it's incredible to watch. It's like a dance routine. It's just like they're sort of going around each other in the kitchen, turning the heat up, turning the heat down, like stir. It's incredible. It's, you know, once you nail it, it's really funny because once you actually nail what works and it has to be the pan that works in your kitchen on your particular hob, that's what you get. If you then move to somebody else's house and they have a different pan and a different heat source, it changes the science of it a little bit. And then you have to acclimatize. You might get it perfect, but, you know, it's it's um, can be a bit nerve wracking. But, you know, in prep terms, Persian food is all, you know, kind of really 
prepped in advance and really easy because it's like just a long, slow cook. So yes, that kind of artistry of them dancing around one dish and maybe doing two rices. You've got one plain and one with something in Lubia it. Lubia you know, Polo. And... <laughs> exactly. You know, they're like queens of the kitchen. God, I miss those days. I haven't had, I haven't seen days like that since I was a kid, but it's um, when it happens, it's glorious and you know you're in for a good feed. Well, I'm, I'm sure you can come around to my auntie's house whenever, <laughs> whenever you want and witness it. After lockdown, I'm sure they'll sit me down and go, you know, we don't cook rice like this. I'm like, I know, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Um, so obviously growing up, I sure, I'm sure you witnessed it and I definitely have. Tardig is such a, a delicacy and it's definitely a, a must have on the dinner table. What do you think makes it such a favourite? I don't know, but I think it's, I mean, what's not to love? Look, we do love crispiness in every culture. You know, even the Spanish have that at the bottom of the paellas. The Koreans have it at the bottom of their bibimbap rice dishes. And we always go for crispy potatoes and crispy chicken. And, you know, we, we, it's, a, it's a texture thing and it always feels sort of nice and, and pleasing. But I think with that, it's, you know, most of the times when we eat crispy rice, you know, we put spoonful of stew on it and it kind of makes some of it a bit more crunchy a bit bit less crunchy a bit more chewy and then ah oh, there's something about that but there is this great tradition that as soon as somebody puts a big plate of rice on the table the taddy gets decimated in seconds and that certainly has always been the case in my um household and all our family parties we always used to have you know, big gatherings, like, you know, you know, the cool 30, 40 people, everybody get together. And sometimes there's like three, you know, two or three different types of rice on the table, like enormous portions. You know, the people are smart. They always go for the crispy taddy first. And actually what's really cool is we have an order of things. I don't know if you have this in your family, but in Persian families, essentially, you know, kids get held back because you always let the older generation approach the table first and then the guests. That's how it goes. The great thing about the older, older generation is they can't, they're not really big fans of getting the tidy stuck in their teeth so, or they can't have the tidy. So you're just like, okay, that's good. You just watch you it just like wait. still there. <laughs> you're like waiting to pounce on it. Exactly. As a kid, that's where you're like, Don't, is there some? Okay, good. <laughs> so yeah, it's... um. That is a, that's kind of how you grow up. It's got a bit of a cult status and usually the cook never gets any because it, it would be rude to not offer that to your guests, but not in my house. Yeah, yeah. I think my house kind of breaks tradition there as well because like, you know, my dad just sort of dad takes a like, big joke. Yeah, get out of my way. Um, <clears throat> so I was actually talking to him about this the other day. We we're having a discussion about our favourite thing to have with Tardig. Um, he said his was Gamer. That's his favourite. What would you say yours is? Uh, so it's a tie between Reime and Gorma Sabzi. So for anyone listening, Reime is a lamb, saffron, dried lime and split pea stew. The recipe is the easiest stew that we can make. It's the first one I learnt. That is also that recipe is in Persiana. But the other one, Gorma Sabzi, is probably has a bit of a cult status. Um, it's a herb-based stew. It's lamb, dried lime, um, parsley, coriander, a little bit of fenugreek and red kidney beans. That 
it's suicide to write that recipe in a book because it's people are so protective over what actually goes in it. It's just the stuff of wars. So I have that as free content on my website if anyone needs it, but um, I'll never publish that in a book because it's just too dangerous. Yeah, people get very protective over it, don't they? Super protective over it because they are quite, you know, what kind of beans you use denote where you are from in, in Iran and do you use fresh herbs, dried herbs, frozen herbs? Do you put chives in it do you put spinach in it it's all it's just not nuts how much people are like no no and then Persians get really aggressive about it as well so you're just like geez okay forget it yeah so do you um have you given gorma sabzi to your you know friends who aren't necessarily Iranian and do they enjoy it or yeah I used to serve gorma sabzi at my supper clubs and I remember um one time years ago I just introduced it it was probably just before I stopped doing my supper club so it was like early 2015 I got it on the menu thinking I don't know if people are gonna like it because it's just a lot of herbs yeah it's very strong flavors it's yeah but it's it's citrusy and herbs and I don't don't think I don't think most people are just accustomed to like half a kilo of parsley and half a kilo of coriander and just didn't know what to do with it. So, uh, but most people think it's spinach when they look at it, cooked spinach. So I served it and um, I remember the first time I had ever served it at a supper club, Nigella Lawson actually was one of my diners. Oh, wow. And no, everybody no, was no just, pressure. <laughs> everybody was, oh, she's, she's so lovely. She loves Persian food and everybody was just looking to her like, what do you do with these dried limes? She's like, oh, I love them. And she just like, you know, I was thinking, yes, Nigella, fly the flag, you know? Like, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, so. um, Keith from um, from Good Food. I brought some of the um, some takeaway food in from from the restaurant, and uh, everyone in the office was trying some, and they all really liked it. And Keith was eating. Um, I think I can't remember what what it was in, but he was eating a Koresh. And he came over, he was like, what did I just eat? And I was like, oh, that's, I'm so sorry, Keith, that's the dried lime. And he was like, okay, yeah, yeah. And like, it's, it's such an intense flavour. And I was like, I'm sorry, I should have told you to take that just, bit out. It's really weird. People always go, like, should I just discard that now? I'm like, no, yeah. like, you should eat it. And I was like, but maybe you should sort of mash it up and cut it up a bit. It's just a, you know, small lime that's dried. So it has a very, very intense, not unpleasant lime flavor, kind of like tamarind in some senses, but a bit more sort of limey, if you will. If you will. But like, you know, the one thing I do know is Western people do not like sour like we like sour. Like my mother would insist on double the dried limes, double the lemon juice. And I did have to tone that down a fair bit because I was like, mum, you're nuts. Like, <laughs> you can't, that's your taste. You know, she'll sit there with a, like a bowl of lemons. This is a very Persian thing. And I know you probably, if you, if you Persians just put salt on lemons and just suck wedges of salted lemons and just endless, endless losing of your, you know, good enamel on your teeth. Persians always do that. Not something I do, but so they love sour and sour herbs, tomato and subtle fragrance is really how you completely sum up Persian food. It's not spice. It's not garlic. We don't use it. We don't use chili. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a lot more sort of subtle than people would um, think. Talking of all these incredible Persian dishes, if you had someone ask for your advice, I saw the other day Alex from the Olive magazine team. She um, went to a Persian restaurant and she said thank you to Sabrina for such amazing advice on what to order. 
What would you say to someone? What are the must essential orders in a Persian restaurant? I'd say order like a pro. um, And that involves your starters. And bear in mind, we don't actually eat starters. We have side dishes. So this starter main course dessert is not a Persian thing. But for the sake of digestion, I would definitely recommend you break it up into starters. Um, we always start with non apanira sabzi, which is bread, cheese, and herbs, just fresh mint, basil, sometimes tarragon. And then you have some raw spring onions and you might have some radishes and some walnuts. This is just to make the tiniest little cheese wraps. I wouldn't go big on those, even though they're delicious, because you're just going to end up getting so full. But they are integral to every meal, no matter what you eat for Persians. The second dish that I would order is uh, must or musir. Must is the Persian word for yogurt. Musir means wild garlic, but not the English garlic that we have wild garlic leaves that are very, very pungent. Our wild garlic is a cross between garlic and a shallot. And it's it's slightly more subtle than the acrid sort of um, punch of garlic. And it's totally addictive and really, really delicious in a thick sort of lactic, sour, salty yogurt. It's wonderful. And we eat that with the fresh flat lavash bread that comes out of the tanours, which is like a tandoor, but we pioneered it and call it a tanour. And we only use it for cooking bread. Then there are two aubergine dishes that are staple. And you only get a tiny bit. It's not so don't think, oh, we could never eat that. It's a tiny little smear of it. So it's more tasters. One is called Mirza Qasimi. Mirza Qasami is a regional dish from the Gilan province where they actually grow garlic. And so it's got lots of garlic, but in the most mellow, addictive, wonderful way. It's smoked aubergine flesh that is scooped out, so it's not fried. And it's mixed with tomato puree, lots of this really mellow garlic. And then... um, fried together and then they you sort of scramble an egg into the mixture and garnish it with walnuts it's incredible recipe is also in persiana and then you have kashkebodim jun another aubergine dish kashk is uh whey basically whey is a byproduct of making cheese and it is sort of a it's not a sour cream it's not creamy but it is rich and almost slightly chalky um liquid sort of substance quite thick that you pour in it's incredible it really is incredible and they fry the aubergines with caramelized onions with lots of caramelized onions and then you stir in some of the whey, and then um, you can serve it. Sometimes it gets served with caramelized onions and a hot mint oil on top, um, and and that is incredible. It just gives you a little bit of a taster. There are other things like Olivier salad, which is like a Russian salad with chicken and uh, gherkins added to it, which is our Persian, influenced by the Russians, but our Persian dish. Um, I find that throws the balance off because it's quite substantial. Um, But you never order hummus in a Persian restaurant ever. This is my one rule. I have fundamental issues with that. If you want to have an authentic Persian experience, then Persian, we don't eat hummus. It's there and it will be on the menus of every Persian restaurant because now we have such a diverse audience as well. And we're multicultural people of, you know, Western and Arab and all different kinds of people that, you know, are patrons at our restaurants. So it is there on the menu because, you know, the demand is there. But if you want to go first time, do not order the hummus. Try all the other stuff first. Then once you're acclimatized and customized to it, 
and you can have your hummus. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we've got the, the starters down. Starters, All 10 yeah, out okay. of 10. Main course, what do you go for? So for main courses, this is what I will say. I'll say a lot of people get misled when they go to Persian restaurants. Persian restaurants are what we call chelo kababi. Chelo means plain rice. Kabob means roast. So it's a rice and roast joint. So whilst they do stews and all these wonderful things on the side, it would be like going to a fish and chip shop and saying, I'll have a Lancashire hot pot, please, on your first visit. It's Yes, they might do it. That's great. And I'm sure it's wonderful. But your first visit should always be about kabob. And there are, traditionally, there are three different kinds of kabob. There is juja kebab, which is a pusan chicken marinated with saffron lemon. And then there is a minced lamb kebab, which is probably the most popular, the most traditional, my favorite. It's called kubide, which means to pound or pounded. Um, and it's just very, very simple and very aromatic. And then there's kebab bag, which means leaf because it's been beaten flat. There are also now sort of chenje, which is like a... a um, a fillet, um, sort of diced fillet. And now they've sort of added in prawns and lamb chops. And those things are not traditional, in my opinion. They are more, again, to to sort of offer people additional offerings for like repeat custom and, and, and variation. But essentially, it's the chicken and maybe two or three different kinds of lamb kebabs that you can go for. And you can mix them up so you can have a skewer of one and a skewer of chicken, let's say. Um, that's what you should be sticking to in a main course. And if you're a real pro, you're going to have a raw onion quarter on the side. And if you're super gangster, egg. then you're going to say, can I have some egg, please? Yeah. And Western people might freak out, but chill people. It's not... Um, it's not breaking any bacteria laws. They will give you an egg yolk that the white has been um, discarded. So it's just the egg yolk. It's raw. And you make a well in your rice, which is steaming hot, piping hot. And you put the egg yolk in there and then you literally bury it in the rice and mix it. And what it does is enriches that rice and makes it all silky and just like so delicious. And then just to add more cholesterol to it, you will add some butter into the mix, which it just is the most amazing thing. It doesn't, it's not like egg fried rice or anything. It's just like nothing you've ever had. And it's unbelievable. So that's if you're just like real OG, original gangster Persian, that's what you do. And if a Western person goes to a Persian restaurant and orders that, they'd be like, ah, <laughs> it's not your first time. <laughs> so I think that probably show them that they're, you know, like I'm in business. I know what I'm yeah. talking about. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. If you want to look like a boss when it comes to Persian food, get an egg. Um, yeah. I mean, even a lot of Persians don't do like egg. I'm like, yeah. Like I went to a Persian restaurant years ago, not one that I would return to. And, like, and they were like, egg, looking at me like, what? And I'm like, egg yolk, raw egg. They're like, okay. I'm like, looking at my mother going, is it me? Am I like living in some other dimension? Like, why are they looking at me like that? And she's like, not everybody does it. Yeah, you've literally described the order of like when I worked in a Persian restaurant of the the older Iranian guys that would come in every Friday at lunchtime and they'd they'd sit around their long table and they'd all be like, you know, chatting and you could tell it was like their their routine. That is their order spot on to a tea, <laughs> down to the Tradition. egg and the butter. And yeah, that is exactly it. I'll have a side of cholesterol. I mean, it's just 
good though. But that's, you know, that's why Persians always look a little loved in the body sweepstakes. You know, there's always a little bit of a paunch with the men because that's when you know he's well-fed, he's well-loved, you know, because... Yeah, it's like a, we call it a polochoresh belly, which is like a rice and stew belly. Because a, I mean, I think that's the best, the best belly way. to have. Yeah. I, no, honestly, it's not a beer belly. That belly is crafted over many years it and is. it takes a long time to develop. So it's labour of it's love, a, isn't it? It is a labour of love and it's, it's, it's actually lovely. Um, <laughs> so what would your advice be for beginners who are sort of just starting out not necessarily with Persian food just with cooking in general because obviously you say that you didn't grow up in a in a food loving family necessarily but you sort of crafted your own love for it so what advice would you give to beginners so I would say, I mean, my family loved food. I just have to clear that because oh. people would be like, what kind of Iranian doesn't yeah. love food? My family Cook loved loving family. food, but they just was never allowed in the kitchen. So um, <clears throat> my advice would be is take some time, read through the recipe, take a breather and just allow yourself a time uninterrupted because I would give you that advice if you were studying. You know, don't study when you've got your kids running around you and you then you have to prepare a meal and you're not likely to get around. You know, think of it as a bit of an education. It won't take long. But if you're likely to have even 10 minutes to read through the recipe and really process it and then have a pan handy, the right pan, put a colander in the sink, a fine hold colander ready in the sink. All these things will prevent prevent possible troubleshooting. You, I want to get you guys to the stage that you're as comfortable as you can be for this process. And I promise you, Western people won't have half the anxiety that you will have because you're Persian. Because we have a, we know what it's supposed to be like. And we've probably eaten it our whole lives and think, oh God, I could never do that, you know. So actually, it's so much better if you're totally unfamiliar to this process, then you kind of go in there you know, totally normally like you'd approach any other recipe. It's not a scary process. It's actually essentially incredibly simple in essence. But there is um, not a lot of room for error. You have to just sort of stick to what works and never deviate. And then it works. And then you'll be making this kind of rice for curry, for, you know, Thai food, Chinese food. I make this rice for everything. <laughs> you know, it, rice doesn't get made any other way in my house. I think I hadn't really cooked Persian food before until I um I got one of your books actually and it kind of simplified everything so much and I was shocked at how easy it was because like I said before when you watch your family doing it it just seems so daunting but you know when it's written down when it's written down on a page especially in your books it just becomes so easy it's like I didn't realize that I could actually do this myself but here I am making Persian dishes that I could only dream about eating at my auntie's house. Like it was, it was really nice to to see that. So thank you for your wonderful books. Pleasure. <laughs> thank you for doing the recipes. Makes me happy, and it continues it continues the the kind of color of our culture on you know in a in a very sort of friendly way with food. And I love that because loads of as we say Farangis foreigners, loads of people cooking, you know, recipes that are Persian, but who aren't Persian and don't necessarily have a connection other than a love maybe for this type of food. So it's just, it kind of fills my heart really and makes me really happy. Like I've 
done a little bit of something to kind of continue this wonderful tradition of food along, but make it a little bit easier. Yeah, <laughs> like, I think you've, you've you made know. my dad really happy as well that he's not going to have to cook the rice every time now. <laughs> I know. <laughs> he's he probably like, listen, Nadia, you really need to start cooking. Yeah. I can't do this all the time. This is my job. It's too much. <laughs> that's he probably thing. doesn't even speak like that. No, he does, actually. That's, that's, that's quite similar. <laughs> No, he comes home from the restaurant and he just doesn't want to cook. So, you know, yeah. So I, I do most of the cooking in my house. But anyway, I think that's all we have time for. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thank you for having me. Anytime. And next week on the Rookie Chef podcast, I'll be learning about profiteroles. Thank you. And that was the Rookie Chef podcast with me, Nadia Zirfat. To get the recipe and find out more, go to bbcgoodfood.com forward slash podcast and make sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts to never miss an episode. 